See the movie critics are saying will leave a mark in residue, a harrowing tale of trauma, violence, and vengeance, and intense, disturbing, and affecting, you'll be thinking about it for days to come. The film's called An Angry Boy, and I wrote and directed it for all the real fans of true crime out there who want to see something really, really scary. It's available to stream right now, at this very moment, on Amazon, iTunes, and Apple TV, Google Play, and Microsoft Xbox. So when you get home tonight, and you're trying to figure out what to watch, we'll shut off the lights and pop that popcorn, and go watch the award-winning dark thriller in Angry Boy. Also, leave a review when you're done, please. Here's a quick clip. What are you doing? I'm gonna kill him. Right on. I'm serious. Dr. Fisher thinks I'm remembering. I've been fucking remembering, all right? Ever since this. I just didn't know what it all was. All right, let's, uh, let's, let's calm down. Calm down? Are you serious right now? Let's just think, okay? You're telling me... You're telling me you, a, a kid from Ozone Park, you was gonna kill some stone-cold killers, bro? Let's just think for a second. I am thinking, all right? 11 years ago, I'm kidnapped outside my house right here. Two months later, Ken Tolley, the hunter, finds me in the Indian forest. Now, this guy right here, his name I don't remember. So for now, this is just Tom. Tom kidnapped me, took me into the woods, somewhere around Indian forest, where I met Andy. His name I remember. These guys, they were like a cult and Andy was the leader. They preached all this psychobabble bullshit about boys and men living in a utopian nature place together. Shit like that. Wait, so you're telling me that they were like a cult? Like, like more people? No, but they, they wanted more people. But yes, a cult like every Netflix documentary you've seen, you know? These guys, they talked like, like a priest giving a sermon, uh, a witch casting a spell, any sort of religious thing you want. The same as all that, when you heard it, you knew it was shit, right? Right. These guys, they acted like they were the answer to all the world's problems. So I look up kid cults, pedophile cults, trying to get more insight on how these guys think. And amazingly, one of the biggest ones that ever existed happened right in Revere, Massachusetts, up here. They called themselves NAMBLA. Come look. North American Man-Boy Love Association. What kind of sick shit is that, dude? I know. It was a group that started in the late 70s, and they tried to promote relationships between boys and men being good for the world. There were lawsuits over the next 20 years, several murders, and by 2000, NAMBLA was done. But all those involved had to go somewhere. Andy and Tom head west, and that's when they got me. Right, right, right. So now they're back in Massachusetts, though? They feel the heat after I escape, so they move back into Mass. Holy shit. So if they're up there, and there's only one area in the entire state that has all of their nature, rivers, and mountains. Right there. I know it's a big area, big idea, but get this. This spot has more missing children cases per capita than New York and New England combined. They're up there. We all love eating tasty food, and what's even better than that is when it's completely free. That's exactly what HelloFresh is giving away to you guys today. Free appetizers for the rest of your life. If you don't know, HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. I've been a long-time subscriber because not only do they make meal planning as simple as possible, 
and essentially remove any trips I need to take to the grocery store. But they have the biggest menu out there with over 50 recipes to choose from every single week. I mean, it's summertime. We all want to spend more time relaxing in the sun and less time in the kitchen using HelloFresh, and they let you get back to enjoying pool and beach time with just a few clicks on your computer. Just choose your meals, select a delivery date, and HelloFresh delivers everything right to your door. And like I said, when you sign up today, you'll unlock free appetizers for life. Go to HelloFresh.com slash AndrewApps for free appetizers for life. One appetizer item per box while subscription is active. That's free appetizers for life at HelloFresh.com slash AndrewApps. Every town has a dark side. Many attest that traveling to a foreign place is always an opportunity worth grabbing. It's refreshing to be a tourist for a period of time, not being known by anyone and not knowing anyone in return. There's an unmistakable excitement and a refreshed feeling in being anonymous in the world, even if it is just for a while. And that's exactly what Atsumi Yoshikubo, a Japanese woman, most likely felt when she ventured on her own to Yellowknife, Canada in October of 2014. She had gone there to witness the beautiful northern lights, but fate intervened in a tragic and mysterious way. I'm Andrew Fitzgerald, and thank you guys so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Everytown. The mysteries surrounding Atsumi Yoshikubo became widely covered news in Canada that reverberated all the way over to her home country, Japan. Now, eight years later, her story is still as baffling and mysterious as it was when it first happened. In local Japanese folklore, it's believed that a child conceived under the northern lights will enjoy good luck and good health, although this is more of an urban legend that stemmed from a joke on the American TV series Northern Exposure. Nevertheless, though, many Japanese come to see the aurora or polar lights, notably in Yellowknife in Canada's Northwestern Territory, which has become the go-to place for Japanese tourists since the early 1990s. In fact, it's the more preferred place of these tourists than Alaska or Scandinavia, where Northern Lights have become an attraction there too. In the case of Yellowknife, it's estimated that 20% of its tourists come from Japan because of its generally flat and undeveloped surrounding terrain and predominantly clear but cold weather during its long winter nights. Data shows that since 2008, there have been 60,000 Japanese tourists at Yellowknife who had come there just to see the Northern Lights. One of those who was eager to do so was Atsumi Yashikubo, 
a 45-year-old psychiatrist from the city of Uto, located in Kumamoto, Japan. She decided to make a trip to Yellowknife on October 17, 2014, although it was not the peak season yet for Japanese tourists since the northern lights weren't as visibly clear as during other times of the year. In October, there's not enough snow cover for dog sledding, which most tourists also prefer to do during the winter. But visitors to the city can also do some walking on the icy and swampy trails through the boreal forests or snow forests and bedrock outcrops in and around Yellowknife. But it can be potentially perilous, especially for those who venture unprepared or without an accompanying guide. Despite the off-peak season for the Aurora and Yellowknife, Atsumi had arranged a trip there through a tour operator in Toronto. She planned to stay for a week in the city's largest hotel, the Explorer Hotel. It was perhaps the fitting place to stay in because Miss Yashikubo planned to explore the area on her own since there was no available organized tour which most Japanese tourists would avail. So Atsumi decided to make her own itinerary, which only she knew. In the past, she had traveled solo, but it was unusual for Japanese women to embark on a journey on their own like this. If they ever did, uncompanied Japanese women who visit well-known tourist spots would typically assemble with other tourists when they got to their destination. But in Miss Yoshikubo's case... She preferred to distance herself from the other tourists. Atsumi's activities during the first two days of her trip seemed normal for any tourist. On October 19th, her visit to a popular local gift shop and souvenir store called Gallery of the Midnight Sun, where she was buying items presumably as gifts for her family and friends, was recorded on security cameras. That same day, she was also recorded by the cameras at Yellowknife's Tourist Information Center, and in both instances, she was seen wearing a pink parka, black pair of trousers, a darker pink hat, and a pair of white shoes. Nothing seemed unusual in her behavior or activities that day. But in the next two days, the activities of the Japanese tourists became unknown and suspicious. The morning of October 22nd, Atsumi's fifth day in Yellowknife, CCTV footage from the hotel caught her leaving, dressed in the same pink jacket and black pair of pants she wore three days before. She had decided to go on an adventure by herself. At around 11.30 a.m., a retired Royal Canadian Mounted Police Constable named Jessica Real spotted Atsumi walking along the Ingraham Trail between Niven and Jackfish Lakes near the city's northern limits, which are basically an underdeveloped area and may pose some danger to hikers. Miss Real had contemplated stopping and asking Atsumi 
if she needed any help, but she decided it wasn't necessary because she thought Asumi seemed fine. Jessica noted that her attire was appropriate for the temperature. Her pink parka went down to her knees. She had warm gloves and a hat on and a camera around her neck. This was the last sighting of Atsumi because she never returned to that hotel. When the staff noticed three days later that their Japanese guest had either left the hotel without properly checking out or decided to extend her reservation, they went inside her room. There was nobody inside there. Instead, the hotel staff found her luggage packed with all her stuff. Staff then immediately reported Atsumi missing to the RCMP, which in turn inquired from the Yellowknife Airport if the Japanese woman had boarded her flight home. The answer, though, bewildered them. Atsumi was still in Yellowknife, but where exactly was she? Upon news of her disappearance, the RCMP launched an intensive search effort that utilized not only personnel on the ground, but also its aerial facilities. This ensured that they covered the stretches of the northern boreal forest and west of Yellowknife, where Atsumi was last seen by Jessica Reel. But the Ingraham Trail passes through an enormous area of forest, which ultimately made the search difficult. Even the local residents helped in the search, fearing that Asumi was a victim of foul play on the trails, and as a way of expressing their concern for her family in Japan. The search was considered urgent because the days were growing steadily colder and shorter that time of year. Atsumi's strange disappearance then became widespread news in Canada and Japan, So much so that five Japanese news outlets flew to Yellowknife to cover the story for their viewers back home. Her disappearance was the first ever case among Japanese visitors who had come to Yellowknife, so it definitely was a headliner. Ultimately, based on the investigation of her activities in her hotel room, A decision to end the search was made by the RCMP. They believe she had arrived in Yellowknife with a plan to go into the wilderness alone and became a missing person. They also claim that Atsumi had taken steps to avoid detection. However, they declined to elaborate as the case was still open and the discovery of any remains was still pending. In effect, police believed Atsumi had committed suicide. In an unexpected twist of fate, Atsumi's brother Kenji in Japan was also in the news when the country's Ministry of Foreign Affairs contacted him. 
He was informed that Atsumi had sent a letter to a female friend before heading to Yellowknife. And in that letter, she suggested that she was planning to end her life in Canada. Although Atsumi had long been estranged from her father and brother, and they didn't naturally know she went to Canada, Kenji believed that the letter existed, but he admitted he hadn't read it. Kenji, though, wasn't convinced that his sister intended to take her life in Yellowknife because she had been buying souvenir items for people she knew in Japan, and she had also purchased a return ticket to Udo. The narrative that Atsumi went to Canada to commit suicide didn't make a ton of sense. She projected happiness to everyone she interacted with, and security tape showed her smiling and being congenial in many instances. Kenji felt there was no way she would have committed suicide in Canada, because why wouldn't she at least choose Japan's suicide forest or the Sea of Trees if she was going to do this at all? Even if the search had been called off, the RCMP informed news outlets that the search and investigation went on into the next weeks. Said an RCMP spokeswoman, they're continuing to still search and conduct different investigations and follow leads they're getting. It's just that the search and rescue is done. Just because that part is over, it doesn't mean we're giving up. The search effort had a profound effect on the people of Yellowknife. In addition to helping search for the missing woman, they also set up a registry for people to sign and write well wishes to Atsumi's family back in Japan. Councilman Dan Wong said, I know there was a tremendous amount of local support for the search, and I think it's a way for Yellowknifers to let Atsumi's family in Japan know our thoughts are with her family. Jessica Real, the last person who saw Atsumi on the Ingraham Trail, wondered if things would have been different if she had decided to stop and offer a ride that fateful day. Days after knowing that the woman was reported missing, Miss Real said, I just felt terrible. I didn't sleep much that night. We talked about it at work the next day and how important it is to listen to that little voice on your shoulder. I'll always wonder what happened or if I had stopped, if it would have made a difference in any way. A small-scale search effort continued during warmer weather, and the RCMP team focused on areas of the boreal forest where Atsumi may have gone. Only trained personnel who knew how to process a case wherein a dead body may be found knew of the plan and the targeted areas. And the day which brought an answer as to what exactly happened to Atsumi during those long winter months when searchers didn't find a trace came almost a year later.
in early September of 2015, RCMP announced that a hiker in an area off Ingraham, north of Yellowknife, had found personal items belonging to Atsumi. Along with these items were human remains, but the agency couldn't make a definitive conclusion if those were Atsumi's remains because forensic examinations could take months to be done. But seven months later, in April of 2016, Northwest Territory's chief coroner, Kathy Maynard, said it was confirmed that those were indeed the remains of Miss Yoshikubo. based on the DNA tests and the bone fragments found. Atsumi died in the woods outside Yellowknife. With these developments, the RCMP announced the case was closed. There weren't much more than bone fragments left at that point, and law enforcement was unable to determine the cause of her death. Oddly, they also found two notes among Atsumi's belongings. One was apparently a suicide note addressed to her family and friends in Japan, and the other one contained her love for the Canadian city. The chief coroner said, It included how much she loved the North, how much she loved Yellowknife, how much she loved the Aurora. She expressed her wishes about wanting to be buried here. And the notes were translated and then sent to Atsumi's family, and the coroner said it was up to her family to follow through with her wishes and her interment. Atsumi got her wish as she was interred at Yellowknife's Lakeview Cemetery. As pointed out, this disappearance and death of Atsumi at Yellowknife was the first among Japanese tourists who have thronged the place to experience the Northern Lights. So a concern of how her case would affect tourism in the city was raised. The director of the Territorial Tourism Information Center said, This will frighten the Japanese culture that a person has gone missing. In contrast, Colin Dempsey, president of the Northern Frontier Visitors Association, expressed sadness for Atsumi's family for her unexpected death in a foreign place, but said that the member businesses of the association were relieved that there was no foul play involved in her disappearance. He also believed that eliminating any possibility of an accidental death would dispel any potential concerns that could affect tourism. The city's tourism center reported that it had not received inquiries from Japan whether people should reconsider booking a trip to Yellowknife, fearing for one's safety. As proof that tourists from Japan continue to flock, the manager of two local tour operations said that there had been no booking cancellations from the Japanese tourists. Another concern came from the small Japanese-Canadian community in Yellowknife, many of whom had thriving businesses that catered to these tourists. They feared that Japanese with suicidal tendencies would emulate what Atsumi had done, 
although acknowledging the concern a tour operator raised doubts of the possibility because it's expensive to travel there. He cautioned that he and his colleagues should be more vigilant in dissuading Japanese visitors to embark on an adventure alone at night into the bush in order to avoid getting lost in an unfamiliar territory. Despite the closure in this case and the release of information surrounding it, the curiosity of people remains. What exactly caused her death? Many different things could have happened to her. Did she run into a bear? Some of the locals feared that was the case when they were searching for her. Was she struck by a motorist? Did someone pick her up and murder her? Or did she in fact kill herself in the wilderness of northern Canada since her note had stated she wanted to die there? Unfortunately, we probably will never know for sure what truly happened to her because there just isn't enough evidence pointing to one conclusion. The only thing we know for a fact is that Atsumi Yoshikubo came to Canada and traveled to Yellowknife and for whatever reason died there as she wished. So that's going to do it for this week's episode of Every Town. Tune in next week for another one filled with scary, strange, and mysterious stories. Because who knows? Maybe your town will be next. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.